Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning, morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Fred Kemp, President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Uh, uh, I take uh, enormous pleasure in, uh, in opening up and welcoming to a lot of our events, to a lot of our work. Uh, this is some of the most important work we've done, and so I take particular pleasure being here today. Uh, to welcome you to today's discussions on the current state of U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, today's half-day symposium was made possible by the joint efforts of the Atlantic Council and the Iran Project. Uh, the Atlantic Council began its work uh, on Iran six years ago, uh, or its current work. Uh, if you go back through our 55-year history, we've touched on it on several occasions. Uh, but we began our most current work on, on Iran six years ago when we launched our Iran Task Force, uh, co-chaired by Ambassador Stu Eisenstadt uh, and the then Atlantic Council Board Chairman, uh, then uh, former Senator Chuck Hagel. We're pleased uh, that both uh, are co-chairing the uh, Iran Initiative. Stu Eisenstadt has now been joined by Secretary Hagel now that he's re returned uh, to civilian life from the Pentagon. Over the years, we've uh, held more than 70 events, published more than a dozen issue briefs and reports that have examined Iran's regional activities, uh, its nuclear program, domestic politics, and record on human rights. Last year, we focused on the nuclear negotiations, which culminated on July 14th with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JICPOA a complex, complex agreement that sought to curb Iran's nuclear program in return for sanctions relief. Uh, this year, under the acting directorship of uh, Barbara Slavin, uh, our Iran task force has become our Iran initiative, and we've expanded uh, the program to, as I said, a future of Iran initiative that seeks a deeper understanding of the impact of this agreement and broader U.S. engagement with Iran, and understanding better also what's going on inside of Iran. Um, you never can entirely uh, predict the direction that this historic of an agreement and moment will take. We want to continue to monitor this and to inform the public debate uh, as responsibly and effectively as we can. We're particularly delighted to be hosting this important symposium in the Iran Project under the leadership of former Ambassador Bill Lors. This is our third uh, collaboration with you, sir, uh, and uh, following a conference last December and a luncheon in New York last October with Iranian Foreign Minister uh, Zarif, and it's a pleasure working with you whenever we can. Thank you so much. Today, nearly a year after the agreement was signed and five months to the day after it reached full implementation, we are examining whether this deal has worked as anticipated, what the challenges to implementation are, and what the opportunities, if any, have opened up for U.S.-Iranian diplomacy in other spheres. Um, I have a personal interest as well. I hope we'll hear some of that during the course of the day on what this does regionally. Uh, we will begin with a panel on sanctions continue with a look at U.S.-Iran relations and a panel on the regional landscape and end with a keynote address. Uh, I think we're all very excited about that with Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes. We hope you will say, stay for the entire morning and appreciate your continued interest in our Iran work 
and, uh, and uh, we're also very happy to have uh, all of our viewers online as well. Usually I'm given a hashtag. What's our hashtag for today? Well, sorry? AC Iran, so hashtag AC Iran, uh, and, and uh, we, we really look forward also to engaging our online community. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to our co-host, Ambassador Lurz, William Lurz. Apart from an admiral career in the Foreign Service as ambassador to Czechoslovakia and Venezuela, and his current uh, position uh, as director of the Iran Project, Bill is a good friend and a person uh, that I steal ideas from all the time. So Bill, great to collaborate with you again. The floor is yours. Thank you, Fred, um, and thanks for this continuing relationship. Um, you have many things you do. We have one thing we do. The Iran Project has been dedicated to um, finding diplomatic solutions to the particularly the big problem, which was nuclear. And uh, this has been going on for 15 years, and, and a small group of us held together and lived together and worked together, and Stephen Heinz, who is my partner in this venture, uh, and I started this in 2002 with Suzanne DiMaggio, where we, if Suzanne is here. Um, the, uh, the first principle for, I guess, me and I think Fred in trying to work together on this issue is to try to depoliticize it. Now, that's a tall, a big task, um, to say the least, and, and we have... Um, uh, trying to find ways to include more and more people, thinkers, writers from the other side uh, that has been opposed to it straight through, because now the deal is done and we have a, um, uh, a task to do to make it work. And that's a little bit about what this conference is all about. Um, but Fred, I, I thank you for working with us uh, using this facility for, for the work of Barbara and, and Michelle, who have been so helpful in making this all happen. Um, and I guess I'd have to say that our, our funders and partners, Joe Sirensoni and the Plowshares Group, uh, many of whom are here, and, and of course Stephen, who is from Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Um, we are persuaded that um, there is a possibility over the next year to um, depoliticize this. Uh, depending on what the election looks like. Uh, but so we've determined to go out around the country and the Iran Project has mounted a, a 20 to 22 city effort to take our group out and try to match as much as we can with opposition uh, speakers and, and leaders to present to communities, to the newspaper, to the media in these 20 cities uh, a, an, a discussion of what this actual agreement means for the United States and U.S. interests, both the possibilities and the risks, uh, not as a sales pitch, but as, a, as an effort to bring reality to the discussion and uh, bleed it of its, of its political um, virility. Um, the, um, the answer to the question, can we work 
with Iran, can the U.S. work with Iran, is first we have to work with Iran on the implementation of this agreement, and that's a requirement. And secondly, uh, we, we have great opportunities to work with them in other areas, but how do you do that and will we be able to do it given the political situation in both Iran and the United States? And I hope we'll explore that today, including in the region. Um, my second task was to introduce John Smith, who is the acting director of, of OFAC. Is there anybody in this room who doesn't know what OFAC is? Is there anybody? <laughs> um, it's, it's probably the most powerful small agency in the U.S. government. And uh, it, it does good things for the U.S. It defends our national security in a, in a, in a peaceful way, an extremely effective way. This is an office of about 200 people, and they have undertaken over the years uh, to carry out the mandates of sanctions uh, legislated by the Congress, strongly supported by the executive branch, and uh, they have brought into line with this effort to restrict the flow of money to not only Iran, but to terrorist organizations and probably 10 or 12 other countries more uh, on which we have legislated sanctions over the last several decades. As you know, or you may not know, that OFAC has its, its legit, uh, legacy back in the War of 1812, and guess who they were trying to stop the cash flow to in, the, in 1812. Um, it, it's, uh, it's an important organization, and John, is now acting head, as you know, because uh, Adam Zubin, his former partner, is now acting undersecretary. And he will not be fully head of the organization until the Congress decides finally to uh, uh, approve the uh, nomination of, of undersecretary, acting undersecretary Zubin. Let me say, our, my experience has been interesting with OFAC. Um, powerful. Uh, important, regulatory, and yet for our experience, they're the most, one of the most accessible uh, organizations in the U.S. government. We've, over these years, had excellent relationship with Adam and with John, and I, I guess it's important to know that uh, they're always ready to come and talk about the complicated issues and very complicated issues over which they, uh, they oversee. John was a, um, had spent several years in the office of OFEC, uh, about seven years, before he did other things. He graduated from, uh, from University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, uh, and he um, grew up about 100 miles from me. I was born in Springfield, Illinois, and he in St. Louis County. And so we're natural Middle Western uh, companions and compatriots. He went to Columbia University, got his law degree, and has been functioning in various roles, particularly in this regulatory area for most of his recent career. Um, John, we've posed a lot of questions to you, uh, and you'll get more. Uh, thank you for coming. It's, it's an honor to us to have you here, and, and we look forward to hearing your remarks. Thank you. 
and after after John speaks, the panel will come up uh, and he will join the panel and the panel will comment on what he has had to say and then I guess most of you will get the opportunity to ask questions. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for the very kind introduction. It's actually hard to follow that and hard to live up to it, so I very much appreciate it. Um, and to the Atlantic Council and the Iran Project for hosting today's event, I think it's a very important event for us all to take stock of where we are one year after the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or as we call it, the JCPOA, and five months from Implementation Day. It's really a pleasure to be able to take stock of some of the events that have occurred over the past year, uh, particularly in the months since Implementation Day, and to reflect on the incredibly hard work that we at the Treasury Department, our colleagues at the State Department, and really across the U.S. government, as well as our European Union and other partners around the world, all of the incredibly hard work that we've done and continue to do to implement our commitments under the deal. Of course, hard work is only one part of the equation. And many implementation challenges remain, and I know that we'll be discussing some of those here today. But I can stand here today and say with confidence and without hesitation that we at OFAC and in the US government more broadly have lived up to every commitment that we made one year ago. Over the course of the last several months, we at OFAC and our, with our Treasury uh, State Department colleagues broadly have traveled the world. We've traveled the globe. We've gone to more than two dozen countries uh, to spread the word about the sanctions lifting and the sanctions that remain. For my part alone, I've been to Europe three times in the last few months, and I have another trip coming up, all on JCPOA-related work. I've met with EU finance ministers, various EU member state government officials, senior and line members of financial institutions, and a host of other private sector business. Iran has kept its end of the deal, and we've upheld ours, and are committed to continuing to do so. After all, by following through on our commitment to provide sanctions relief, we sustain the powerful incentive for Iran to adhere to this deal and provide the same for other malign actors to respond to sanctions by changing their behavior. In every meeting, in every jurisdiction, I reiterate the same vow. OFAC and indeed the entire U.S. government will not stand in the way of permissible business that is within the scope of the JCPOA and the sanctions lifting that we provided. Our message is clear and unwavering. On implementation day, the U.S. government broadly lifted our nuclear-related secondary sanctions, those sanctions that apply to non-U.S. persons for transactions conducted outside the United States by removing more than 400 individuals and entities from what's known as our SDN list, revoking certain executive orders, and issuing waivers for other sanctions authorities. We've explained in great detail that this sanctions lifting means that non-U.S. persons no longer risk being cut off from the United States or the U.S. financial system for dealing in previously restricted sectors of Iran's economy, or knowingly conducting transactions with or providing goods or services to any of the individuals and entities that we took off our SDN list. 
Of course, certain U.S. sanctions that were outside the scope of the JCPOA remain in place. These include our sanctions authorities related to Iran's support for terrorism, its ballistic missile program, its human rights abuses, and its destabilizing activities in the region. More than 200 Iranian-related or Iran-related individuals and entities remain on the SDN list for such activities, among others, and secondary sanctions continue to apply to transactions with such designated parties. The other significant area of sanctions that remains is the U.S. primary embargo, which affects U.S. persons or transactions within U.S. jurisdiction. Even after implementation day, U.S. persons continue to be broadly prohibited from engaging in transactions with Iran beyond three limited areas of relief agreed to in the JCPOA, in addition to the long-standing authorizations that we had in place already to allow the export of certain goods, such as food, medicine, medical products, and agricultural commodities to benefit the people of Iran. At this point, we've explained the sanctions lifting as we've traveled the globe. We've also published extensive guidance and frequently asked questions or FAQs on our website beginning on implementation day and continuing since that time. We've issued nearly 100 pages of guidance so far, including more than 100 FAQs, which we continue to update. In fact, as many of you know, we issued additional FAQs just last week in response to questions that we received from the business community and from other governments. So where does that leave us today? Our message is clear that for non-U.S. persons, there are just two primary things to consider as they explore business with Iran. First, is there any secondary sanctions exposure that remains? And what are the potential touch points to U.S. jurisdiction? We also continue to reiterate that in addition to the extensive information that we've put on our website, we have resources available through our hotlines and email inboxes to take additional inquiries. So if people are confused about the rules and need some guidance, reach out to us and we're here to answer if we can. At this point, I think it's useful for me to offer a few perspectives on some of the critiques that I've heard since implementation day in recent weeks um, so that you can hear from my perspective about some of those critiques and the OFAC mindset as we try to respond to them. The first critique that I've heard is that our remaining sanctions on Iran are just too complex to understand. I will concede that our sanctions rules, particularly with respect to those affecting U.S. persons in U.S. jurisdictions, are something that are very important for people to understand and they need to understand the detailed rules. But I disagree that our sanctions rules with respect to non-U.S. persons are too complex to understand. As I've said frequently, there are just two simple rules for people to know if you're a non-U.S. person wanting to engage in business with Iran. One, don't do business with Iran-related persons that remain on our SDN list. Um, that shouldn't be too difficult for much of the world because many of those that remain on our list, such as the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC, also remain designated by the European Union and other partners. So that shouldn't be too difficult to implement those types of restrictions. The second is don't involve a U.S. person, the U.S. financial system, or the U.S. in any way when you as a non-U.S. company want to transact or engage with Iran. That's it. Those are the general rules for non-U.S. persons, non-U.S. companies wanting to deal with Iran. So I disagree that the rules are too complex to understand. The second critique that I've heard floating out there suggests that OFAC hasn't offered sufficient guidance or clarity 
to allow non-U.S. firms to go back into Iran. As you can probably guess from what I've said already, I disagree. Um, we have offered 100 pages of guidance. We have offered over 100 pages or 100 FAQs. When we get additional questions, when we see that there are general questions that are coming in, we update our FAQs as we did just last week. We haven't stopped in issuing the guidance. We have been traveling the world. We come to meetings like this. We've been to hundreds of them since the JCPOA implementation day occurred, and we're not stopping. But when we probe companies about the supposed lack of guidance, because we're trying to understand what it is that they want to know, we hear their responses boiling down to one of three concerns, and I think it's useful for me to go down to each one of those about what we hear about the concern about lack of guidance or lack of sufficient clarity. The first concern that we hear is that a non-U.S. company wants to use the U.S. financial system or U.S. persons as part of its business. And it wants OFAC. It comes into OFAC and says, please make an exception for us because we have a really important reason that we want to use the U.S. financial system or U.S. persons. The answer is generally going to be no. Our U.S. primary embargo remains. That was part of the JCPOA. That was part of the deal. And so it's not a question of OFAC not providing sufficient guidance or clarity. It's a question of companies not liking the guidance or clarity that we've offered in many cases. Two, there are cases where non-U.S. persons, non-U.S. companies have U.S. person employees. This is very much the case with multinational corporations that have U.S. company, U.S. persons in their ranks. And they want to know what do they have to do with the U.S. person employees? Do, can the U.S. person employees be involved or do they have to be walled off? And the answer is it has been for decades involving non-U.S. companies dealing with countries under U.S. sanctions such as Cuba, Iran, Sudan, Syria, is that the non-U.S. company must wall off its U.S. person employees, even senior executives and compliance officials. This isn't a new concept. Many companies have been doing this successfully for decades. And so this is the answer to some of the concerns that we hear on that front. The third concern about the lack of clarity that companies have said, uh, complained about, have been our la may have been a lack of clarity on OFAC's due diligence expectations. What do we expect companies to do going back into Iran? What do we expect European companies, other companies, to do when they go back into Iran, particularly with respect to some of the actors that act in a non-transparent way in Iran, such as the IRGC? And here, my response will be twofold. I'll say, first, don't hold OFAC responsible for the IRGC's lack of transparency. That's where corporate actors can and should demand accountability and documentation from their potential Iranian partners, including the government of Iran. But second, in terms of due diligence and the level of expectation that we have, um, I think that's a question that's best posed to the home country's regulator. Uh, many of these, uh, Entities that remain on our list, as I said, remain on the EU list or other lists. And what I would say to a third country company is go talk to your own regulator about their due diligence ex expectations, how you can satisfy their home country's desire to make sure that you satisfy the home country's sanctions programs. I can tell you that OFAC will not be playing gotcha for companies that conducted the appropriate due diligence, collected the documentation, but despite their best efforts, unwittingly found themselves dealing with an IRGC front company. That's not the role and that's not even the legal standard that we have, which is a knowledge standard, knowledge or a reason to know that you were dealing with such an entity. 
And I should add that we don't also don't play gotcha in our primary sanctions enforcement either. I'm often asked about the enforcement cases because many people point to some of the big financial institutions that receive penalties and say this is what OFAC is looking to do is to penalize those that make innocent mistakes. And I'll say to the contrary, over 95% of our enforcement investigations result in what we call a no action or a cautionary letter. That means we go back to the company involved and we say OFAC is not taking action or we're going to caution you to be more careful in the future. That is a private letter that goes between OFAC and that company. It's not released publicly. So it's less than 5% of the cases that may result in a public enforcement action. And those cases, the overwhelming number, over 80% over of those, involve what we call willful or reckless conduct. The company knew what it was doing, it knew it was engaging with Iran, it knew it was going through the U.S. financial system, and it did so um, at the peril of U.S. sanctions. And so those are the cases that we tend to take our public enforcement actions. The third and final critique that I've heard that I want to mention uh, quickly is that Iran is not reaping the benefits of the JCPOA because third country companies are, fear, are afraid of making deals because of U.S. sanctions exposure. And I'll say that's clearly not true. We've seen that Iran has already reaped significant benefits from the deal itself. And some of these statistics that I'm going to recite come from Iran themselves. This is what they're publicizing, and we've seen some of this to be the case. According to the government of Iran and Iran media, since implementation day, Iran's received more than $3.4 billion in foreign investment. It's increased its oil production to 3.5 million barrels per day, and it's exporting more than 2.3 million BPD. It's agreed with two foreign aircraft companies to purchase more than 230 civilian passenger aircraft. Its banks have generally reconnected to SWIFT and opened roughly new, uh, 350 new correspondent accounts, and foreign businesses have signed dozens of deals for future investment in business. Having said that, it's clear that the government of Iran anticipated more. It anticipated near instantaneous recognition by the international financial system, a welcome mat to come back into Iran, um, underestimating the changes that Iran itself would need to make, including updating its financial and business systems to meet Western standards. <clears throat> I will acknowledge that some non-US companies have indicated they don't want to take on any Iran business despite the sanctions lifting for a variety of reasons, including perceived sanctions risks. These companies recognize that there are compliance costs in dealing with jurisdictions that may be assessed as higher risks, whether because of sanctions, instability, or a lack of controls or transparencies. And these companies have demonstrated and determined that the benefits of such trade may not for themselves at this point in time outweigh the risks. Indeed, many non-U.S. companies have clarified to us, though, that their sanctions concerns, what they're calling sanctions concerns, are really boiled down to um, concern over Iran's AML, CFT uh, regime, its lack of transparency uh, in the corporate and financial sector, and its status uh, on the FATF blacklist. All of these are real concerns and will be best addressed by Iran making strides to make its investment climate more in line with Western standards. And we believe it's critical that businesses not simply use U.S. sanctions as shorthand for these types of concerns because we do not want to diminish the pressure on the government of Iran to undertake the long overdue and necessary changes it must make to its financial system 
to truly re-enter the world's economy. Iran needs to continue to receive the message that it must modernize its economy, it must update its technology and business standards, increase transparency, and avoid provocative actions that diminish the confidence of Western business and investors. In the meantime, OFAC will continue to be here to be available to answer questions relating to U.S. sanctions, and the U.S. government will continue to live up to our commitments uh, that we made on before implementation day with the deal and that we ratified with implementation day. So we're just about a year down in the life of the deal and five months to the day, as we've heard from implementation day. And I think it's time now that I end my presentation and that we can start with some questions from all of you. So with that, I'll thank you for coming today. The Energy, Economics, and Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Um, thanks for, uh, may I offer my thanks as well to the Atlantic Council and to the Iran Project, <coughs> excuse me, uh, for hosting us here. So now we have an opportunity to continue uh, the conversation with John and also joining me, sorry, one second, uh, on the panel this morning that will deal with sanctions is Teresa Archer Pradas, uh, the Deputy Head of Sanctions Division at the uh, European External Action Service, and George Kleinfeld a partner at Clifford Chance. Sorry, one second. Excuse me. So we have um, a portion of time for this panel. I'll begin by asking a few questions between the group of us and then open up to the audience for some of your own questions. And so uh, against the backdrop, thank you for framing that for us, John. Um, you have acknowledged that um, unlike what uh, some feared and others have expected, there hasn't been this uh, financial windfall to Iran that, um, uh, that has been promised, certainly, by a number of Iranian politicians and, and expected uh, elsewhere. And Iranian hardliners have uh, harshly criticized the United States using uh, language such as uh, the United States and its P5 plus one partners didn't negotiate in good faith, haven't been, doing, haven't been up upholding their part of the bargain. But as you also noted, nevertheless, there have been correspondent banking relationships uh, reinstituted, uh, some major deals uh, that have come into place. Crude trading, uh, petroleum crude trading, has increased much faster, in fact, than many analysts had expected. So you implied, I think, that sanctions aren't actually responsible for uh, the slower economic recovery in Iran than many people expected. Is that what you meant? And also, can I just add here, um, uh, for those who, uh, <coughs> well, actually start there, and then, and then I'll come back to that. So what I would say is I think sanctions are uh, maybe a piece of a business uh, calculation. I think when you look at a, if you're a big banker, if you're a company, you're going to look at the risks of going back into Iran. And you're going to look at your exposure to any US or European or other sanctions. That's going to be a factor. But you're also going to look to uh, the, what you can be assured about when you deal with an Iranian company. Do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who the parent of that company is? Are you going to get paid for it? Uh, do, you, do they have, are they living up to international standards in terms of transparency and uh, global accountability. Um, what does it mean if you're one of two countries on the FATF blacklist? What does that mean for me as a uh, company? So I would say that sanctions are a piece of it, and we're doing our part 
to get out around the world to explain what the sanctions rules are. So that's certainly a factor, but I think that is just one of many factors that businesses are dealing with. And I don't think it's the overriding factor for most of them, at least when they talk to us. So who else has a role for explaining that there are these other factors besides sanctions? Because uh, certainly, if you take a survey of broad international press, the overwhelming impression, which, uh, as you suggest, may be uh, ill-informed, is that, in fact, U.S. sanctions are the primary uh, impediment for Iranian economic recovery. Well, I think when you say who else has the role, I think we've been trying to take our part on the role in terms of going around the world. I think we've been working very closely with our EU partners when, um, and EU member states and other governments. When I, I've talked about the EU because um, we're here with on a uh, panel with the US and EU, but we've gone around the world. We've gone to the Gulf, we've gone to Asia. We've talked to those governments because governments that want their companies to go back into Iran have a vested interest. And so we are working with those governments to be partners to make sure that we can answer all of the questions. But I think it's not just a government issue. I think it's also going to be a, a, an Iranian issue. The government of Iran is going to need to make some of the tough choices uh, about increasing the transparency in its sectors and limiting the role of the IRGC in the economy. Because the more the IRGC is out there uh, spreading through the economy, the more that businesses will be afraid that, do we know who we're dealing with? Right. Um, and then I think the last part comes to the international standards. Those are those they'll work with the FATF and other organizations to make sure that they uphold international standards that the rest of us hold basic. Let me turn the question, the same version of this, to you, Teresa. So in the EU, what role have you been playing, or is the EU playing to clarify for EU companies, EU nationals, including multinationals, though uh, European-based, about the rules for Iran? And uh, I'll just add to this. Uh, a number of European companies have said quite publicly that they see fault and difficulty with U.S. sanctions. So what position does that put you in, in clarifying for your companies exactly what business is now allowed? I, I think it's, it's, it's clear that we also have a, a role to, to play. We have been involved in the negotiations not only through the, the three member states of the European Union, UK, France and Germany, but also the high representative of the European Union was was leading and um, coordinating the negotiations. So we also have a role to play now in the implementation of the GCPOA mm -hmm. and in the lifting of sanctions because EU sanctions were also lifted on implementation day on 60th of January when uh, the, after the, the, the International Atomic Energy Agency confirmed that Iran fulfilled its, its nuclear-related commitments. So of course there's also, first of all, there's also all the, the old EU sanctions that were, were lifted and that have allowed new, new, new areas for, of business with Iran uh, on energy, transport, finance uh, and, and banking um, issues so there, there's there's the, the the EU dimension of of the deal that was 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 important um and we now we also play a role in in the implementation of the GCPOA and uh, the high representative Federica Mogherini is is coordinating the the joint commission uh, responsible for overseeing the implementation of the deal in terms of what we did in, in addition to the lifting of sanctions we also published uh, a new information about providing extensive uh, information and, and and guidance to uh, EU economic operators of course it only concerns the EU sanctions it's not for us to explain how US sanctions are are, are um, to be interpreted 
interpreted. So I think this is where we play a different role. So for us, it's to, to explain EU sanctions, and, and for the US, we, we would expect US to explain US sanctions as, as they've been doing. And I think a lot has, has been, has been uh, done. We have also engaged intensively with, with our business community, uh, also not only at European level, but at the member states level, uh, because they are, they are the, uh, in close contact with their own business community. Uh, and we also have been in, in close cooperation with, with US. And, and we think a, a lot has been done. The fact that the guidance was updated one week ago really shows that there's a continuing engagement and commitment towards the GCPOA, and that the, the guidance is a living document, uh, not only the EU guidance, but US guidance. And this provides uh, further assurances to the international community and to the business community that if there are questions, they will um, be uh, addressed. Good. I, I certainly hope so. But uh, so, George, taking up on this point of the guidance that exists in your position, advising uh, U.S. companies and foreign companies who are contemplating new business with Iran, how, in your experience, do these companies um, uh, look at the guidance that's been provided? Is it adequate? Are there still questions that are left unanswered? And can you also just quickly sketch out, besides what John mentioned at the beginning about some of the new business that is occurring? What are we seeing? What, what kinds of business? What is working? Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to begin as uh, someone who is uh, advising clients in this area and working with OFAC uh, by noting that uh, what, what John said in his opening remarks is it's just dead on accurate. There was no spin there. Uh, it, 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 it really is the case that uh, that the U.S. is living up to all of its commitments and putting out a uh, huge amount of very valuable guidance to the community. And on the other hand, as, as John said, these, these sanctions, although they can be simplified uh, according to the two basic fundamental rules, uh, nevertheless are very complicated. But there are people like me out there who are happy to uh, plume the depths of the complexity to address issues from clients, uh, so uh, complexity alone isn't, isn't an impediment to business. Uh, in terms of what's going on in the business community, uh, Liz, you've, you've noted the types of deals that are being done, uh, a lot of commodities deals, uh, basically deals that don't involve long-term credit risk, uh, cash and carry type deals deals where the Iranian counterparty is the National Iranian Oil Company or some other state-owned enterprise where the diligence is pretty easy because you know the owner is the government and, and not some shadowy third party. Uh, on the other hand, if we're talking about major investment products, somebody uh, needing to put billions of dollars into the ground in Iran, uh, the only types of deals of that caliber that I, I think are likely to go forward over the near term are deals that are fully backed by export credit agencies of the EU member governments or other credit-worthy non-US governments where the governments are taking the credit risk. And, and we are seeing some deals of that kind under development. Everyone in the room who's following the, the press coverage knows that uh, a, a, a big impediment to resumption of business with Iran is the absence of support for such business by the world's leading non-US financial institutions, particularly those based in Europe. And, and John sort of took you through uh, the reasons why there is tremendous reluctance uh, among those financial institutions. And it's not because OFAC 
uh, is acting unreasonably or uh, refusing to provide necessary guidance. It's because of a, a host of, of, of risks and reasons, but obviously that's a big bottleneck. Uh, what I'd like to comment on very briefly is what I see as um, a lesser of the evil situation for the United States uh, in, this, in this current uh, position of, of instability. The logic of the deal is that Iran wasn't willing uh, to offer the United States anything that would have persuaded the United States to remove the primary sanctions. And in fact, Iran perhaps wasn't interested in economic engagement with the United States and preferred to engage with uh, the rest of the world. Uh, Iran didn't appreciate, and perhaps no one really appreciated, that the deal that was struck, uh, because it foreclosed access to the U.S. financial system and the involvement of U.S. persons in non-U.S. dealings with Iran, would make it very difficult uh, for global business with Iran to resume until such point in time as the mechanics of global finance and trade were readjusted to completely exclude the U.S. financial system from that activity. And over time, ultimately, that's the solution. Uh, but that's a terrible solution for the United States because uh, the success of our sanctions depends on the centrality of the U.S. financial system and the U.S. economy so that by imposing sanctions that deny access, we can compel a change in conduct. Um, on the other hand, if, if we want to steer in a different direction, it means we have to offer concessions unilaterally to Iran by making exceptions to the uh, ironclad uh, prohibition on involvement of the U.S. financial system and U.S. persons in Iran-related deals. And it is contrary to all uh, precepts of U.S. foreign policy to offer unilateral concessions in return for nothing. Uh, except uh, what we would get in return uh, would be uh, preserving the centrality of the U.S. financial system. So those are the lesser of the evils, even, even assuming that the deal survives, the, the, the current instability, and reaches a, a point of maturity where the rest of the world has adjusted and created a non-U.S. financial system alternative not only to business with Iran, but with Russia and, and other countries that are the object of either selective or comprehensive sanctions. Thank you. The, you, sent, you mentioned something uh, that I thought was quite interesting about the kind of deals that you expect will be successful going forward in the near future, specifically those that have uh, public financing or government endorsement, uh, which as a proxy for government endorsement. Um, taking as an example the uh, Boeing deal uh, reported on uh, in the last couple of days, John, you happen to be one of the, perhaps the foremost expert on, uh, on sanctions law issues, but um, is it possible that that deal could have any kind of uh, government backing uh, in any fashion as they figure out the financing for it? So you're, uh, I won't talk about any particular deal. Right. As, as OFAC, I have to always uh, not talk about any particular deal. companies. Right. I think that uh, US, uh, well, 
companies that are authorized to engage in trade with Iran, whether it would be U.S. companies that fit within one of our authorizations or non-U.S. companies can get financing um, through a, a variety of sources. Some of them have been, as we've talked about, government sources. Um, we, we are seeing a, a reluctance of larger banks around the world to dive in. That's actually not surprising to me. I hadn't expected that. Um, the world's biggest banks need a much bigger uh, deal, much uh, have bigger profit margins, and we always expected that it was going to be the intermediate, uh, medium to smaller financial institutions that would dip their toe in the water first. And I think um, it is possible for uh, the authorized deals to get financing, whether from um, governments or whether from uh, those financial institutions that are willing to take the risk. Even for U.S. deals? For U.S. deals that are authorized, when we authorize, if it is authorized, and again, not talking about any particular deal, if it is authorized, the financing is generally something that we call incident to the, the authorization, and so they're allowed to, to use um, U.S., uh, they're allowed to use the financing mechanisms that would be contained within an authorization. Again, I'm getting very close to talking about a specific deal. <laughs> very technical, So very technical. I'm going to right. move away from it. Okay, uh, moving on. I want to uh, think about the broader issues of perceptions around this deal. Um, so this is a... Uh, taking again as an example this particular deal, we could also compare it to the um, Airbus announced deal, slightly larger. Um, these are uh, multi-billion dollar, multi-year deals. It's not necessarily the kind of uh, trade finance or trading uh, of uh, commodities or others that would, uh, where the entire transaction would close in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so, Tristan, let me start with you. In Europe, how are people perceiving uh, this Boeing deal, uh, as well as the Airbus one? Is this a vote of confidence that, in fact, uh, the deal is working, that commerce can occur, it may be slow moving at first, but larger, multi-year, multi-billion dollar deals are forthcoming? I will not speak about the Boeing deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, yes, the, the Airbus deal, there, there's, there's the clear perception that uh, um, bigger and big deals will involve big financial institutions uh, because this is something that, that is, is lacking. Uh, and it would be extremely important to, to give this boost of, of confidence to, to the deal and to the implementation and to the Iranian people that uh, a major deal goes through and. Um, and has the, the, and involves all the, the financial elements and uh, institutions that would um, ensure that uh, it materializes. Okay, and George, moving to you too. I mean, as you're looking forward over, say, the next six months or a year, um, you, you've sketched out what, it, in general terms, what uh, business in, in, uh, increasing business could look like. What will be the trajectory in your view? How would you sketch it out uh, in a little more detail? And what will the uh, specific or most primary impediments be? If, if you're a European or an Asian uh, business person, uh, you're concerned about a, a host of risks when you're looking at the Iranian market. Uh, and the biggest uncertainty is the snapback risk that the JCPOA has within it a, a, a specific protocol for the reimposition of the sanctions that were removed. Uh, 
which could occur if Iran decides no longer to comply with its obligations, or if due to a change in the administration here in the United States, the U.S. decides to go down its own different path. Uh, and these are uncontrollable risks that are completely impossible to hedge from a business perspective. Uh, contributing to this uncertainty, and I think not widely appreciated, is the fundamental distinction between the U.S. secondary sanctions and the U.S. primary sanctions. So the U.S. primary sanctions are effectively permanent over the short to medium term. They're not going to change. It's the U.S. secondary sanctions that might snap back uh, along with the European equivalent. And the U.S. secondary sanctions effectively are a secondary boycott. Uh, traditionally, the U.S. has opposed secondary boycotts. And in fact, it's illegal for U.S. persons to participate in the Arab League secondary boycott of Israel. And historically, the Europeans have also been very hostile to secondary boycotts, including those imposed uh, historically by the United States in an effort to chill certain types of European business with Cuba or chill European participation in a Soviet pipeline project, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, since 2010, the U.S. and the Europeans have worked together with great success to coordinate their Iran sanctions policy. So there was an acceptance in Europe of very extreme U.S. secondary sanctions that basically involved the U.S. government telling companies in Europe that they can't do certain kinds of business with Iran, even if that business has nothing to do with the United States. So the big mystery in the future is, uh, what if it's the U.S. that decides to reimpose secondary sanctions, whereas the Europeans are pretty much happy with Iranian compliance and proud of their diplomatic achievement as Europeans in forging this JCPOA? And, uh, don't take kindly to the idea that U.S. government officials will come to Germany and England and France and tell companies in Europe what they can and cannot do in respect of their business that has nothing to do with the United States. I personally would find it gratifying if the Europeans and the European authorities would shed some light on uh, how they would deal with that hypothetical scenario because I think it would contribute uh, to some public education here in Washington. There's this notion that the secondary sanctions are a legal instrument just like every other legal instrument that can be used at the discretion of the United States regardless of how the rest of the world feels about them. And, and historically, that's not a correct presumption. In the last few years, it, it's worked due to a confluence of, of interests. I'm not sure that's how it will work in the future. So this is a, a great jumping off point for a question I wanted to ask. There's a number of um, ambiguities in looking forward in the future that may influence the way in which the transatlantic partners work together on sanctions uh, in the Iran case. Uh, of course, there's a Brexit uh, vote coming up in the not distant future, uh, a U.S. presidential election, elections elsewhere in Europe and France, for example. Um, not asking our government representatives to speculate. Um, can I ask you, however, to talk about what the EU and what the U.S. can do to try and um, uh, look forward, anticipating some, some change uh, that I have just mentioned, how to put in place some safeguards for ensuring that the deal can proceed, that implementation can proceed, as has been intended by the current political leaders who put this deal in place. 
I could start and just say that I think what we've been doing over the past months, but even really the past year, is building that found years is building that foundation between the United States and Europe, and um, Europe being not only the member states but the European Union as an institution. Um, I've been at OFAC for nine years, and I've seen a sea change in the way that we implement sanctions. Um, in at the beginning, we would often historically be implementing our sanctions and we'd notify partner governments that we were moving forward. Um, over the past many years, we've worked hand in glove with the European Union and member states in building sanctions regimes, not just in for Iran, but for Russia, Ukraine, and even a whole host of other uh, conflict areas where we talk together, we work together before we implement those sanctions. So I think even the work that we've done constructively over uh, many years doesn't go away overnight. It doesn't go away because of any election. And I think that it will be our our fundamental goal as um, I'm, a, I'm a civil servant. It will be my continued operation. It'll be my standard operating procedure to work with my European partners and other partners around the world in building sanctions or reducing sanctions because we know that when sanctions are multilateral, they have a greater impact. And when we work together to ease, that also has a greater impact. So I fully expect that to continue no matter what uh, uh, changes happen in any election in any country. No, I would, I would, I would agree with John that, that and, and I think it's quite unprecedented, the, the fact that it's for the first time we are lifting sanctions together in, in such big scale um, because the, the agreement was negotiated together so uh, the, both the, the annexes that have uh, all the sanctions that were lifted were negotiated together. We are now working on the implementation of, of those of this, of this lifting uh, together. So uh, it's, it's extremely important uh, and we, we are, uh, it's very difficult to, to speculate what will happen if uh, uh, I will leave that to, to those that need to invest and to make uh, decisions, <laughs> not for the... the, the um, so it's, it, but it, it's, it's very important. And, and on snapback, I, th I think it's a little bit different than, for example, what would happen in, in the case of uh, elections <coughs> or if someone walks off the deal. Because in case of snapback, we are talking about uh, a violation of the agreement by Iran. So where the, the and it's, it's a process. It's not something that will happen overnight. It's something that will be discussed, uh, that will be uh, addressed, hopefully. So it's not something that we, we can speculate at this stage and, and something that will not happen uh, overnight. Okay, I want to ask one more question to you, John, and then uh, I'll open it up for questions from the audience. You can prepare your thoughts. Um, so I have a question for you on licensing. So you have offered assurances that uh, OFAC will not stand in the way of permitted business. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we certainly hear from the private sector that uh, there's a lot of frustration about um, a lack of sufficient guidance, uh, that there are inquiries that they make, formal inquiries that they make in the form of specific license requests um, or, or requests for guidance that uh, take a long time to be answered. There's uh, definitely I mean, certainly we can all understand that there's lots of questions and there's only so many of you, uh, but can you help us understand with some uh, data or empirical information what that looks like, what the licensing burden or request looks like? How many are you getting? How many people are working on them? How fast can you work through them? Uh, is it, in fact, uh, are we on an upswing or a downswing? So what I can say is we're working flat out on, on this, we are stretched to the limit, and 
and where we, you know, people ask me about how much we can do for licensing, and I can tell you that we have beefed up our licensing division uh, uh, in substantial ways. We've added more licensing officers. We've just created a new um, licensing chief to help get um, licenses out faster. Uh, we're doing what we can within the confines of a small government agency that is restricted in our resources. And so uh, we're trying to make sure that we can do the, the most we, we can. With licenses in terms of a time frame, I can't give a good answer for that for the following reason. We get some urgent licenses that are national security, foreign policy priorities, uh, sometimes with a day's notice or a couple days notice that there is something major that has to occur and we have to issue this license. And so there are licenses that are issued within a matter of a day or a couple days because they are urgent national security foreign policy priorities. I wish that were not the case. I wish that life were more orderly and we could always have a licensing process that um, could be predictable. Um, most licenses can take longer and I expect that they will take longer at the beginning and they can stretch into the weeks and into the months and for that I do apologize, but this is the process and this is the reason at the beginning, particularly, that this occurs. Many of the license applications that come in, and you have to understand, when you're first talking about a license application, you're talking about something that is not already authorized pursuant to the deal. It is something, or pursuant to US law, it is something that you want us to make an exception to the current set of rules for. And so, with the Iran program and with the deal still being relatively fresh, five months since implementation day, we got hundreds if not into the thousands by this point of license applications, many of which were seeking to do something new or unique because we were at uh, a turning point in our relationship with Iran. Many or most of those that require some new thought in terms of national security foreign policy priorities will be something that then we would send over to the State Department for foreign policy guidance. And it is then up to our State Department to evaluate and assess whether the license application itself would meet uh, the foreign policy priorities of the U.S. government. And so especially at the beginning when you're looking at a new type of license, those are difficult questions. They often involve more than one agency of the U.S. government. They may involve the Commerce Department. They may involve other parts of the U.S. government. And so at the beginning, as we struggle to set up the certain policy with an aspect or a category of license applications, that can take longer. What I can tell you is my experience over nine years is once you answer the first batch of those questions, then the guidance is there and the license applications that can come in are treated pursuant to those um, standards. So how the long last, does it... The last thing I wanted to say yep. is, generally, even though I said there are some urgent ones that come in um, that we have to treat that day, most license applications are treated on a first-in, first-out basis. So we process according to the license application when it comes in, and we go through that process. We often hear um, uh, European or third country companies saying, um, if they have to come in for a license because of some U.S. connection, they often wonder, are we put to the bottom of the pile? And the answer is no. Generally, it's a first-in, first-out 
um, per category of license applications. You were saying how long does it take? To no, no, oh, to, no. Uh, to, to do a first round. Is that a six month period, an 18 month period? It, it'll be different depending on the, there are some that we've already resolved. There are some licenses that have already gone out that we needed foreign policy guidance for. We got the foreign policy, we went for, uh, forward. There are some that we decided as OFAC, we didn't need foreign policy guidance. Right. We could make the decision, those went forward. And there are some that are, uh, that are months and they're still waiting. And right. I want to be as transparent as possible. There are some that are months and they're still waiting. Um, those are the tougher calls, often that involve broader foreign policy issues or that involve complex legal issues. Some of the issues that we're confronting are there's a UN Security Council regime that's set up. There's a procurement channel that's set up as part of that. And some of the license applications that we get may implicate some of the UN standards. So we not only have to make the decision as the US government, but we also have to be able to consult foreign partners to say, this is the way we're going to interpret it. Is this the way you is the E3, you as the EU are also going to interpret this to make sure that we're on the same page? OK, so we'll move now to some questions from the audience. Um, uh, in the back, uh, or mid, mid back, yeah, are you holding your hand up? Uh, can, uh, a lady standing here, yes, you have brown hair, can you stand up? Yes, you, yes, there's a microphone coming to you, thank you. Hi, it's Emily Meredith from Energy Intelligence, and I have a question that sort of follows on Liz's, and that's... Um, can you speak up a little? Yep, sorry, and that's just, um, is OFAC right now in the business of issuing letters of comfort or advisory opinions, or are we on, you know, things that are already allowed, not things that still need to be licensed? Um, and the, the answer is, I'm going to say a yes and no and explain. Um, we don't issue, as a rule, uh, to U.S. companies who have dealt with us for years, we don't issue a license or a comfort letter or any kind of letter for something that we've already authorized. Because if we did that, we would never issue licenses. We'd just be issuing comfort letters for things that we've already authorized. We're getting a lot of those questions from non-US companies now saying, we know it's within the scope of the sanctions lifting that you've allowed under secondary sanctions, but will you give us a letter that says that? And the answer is no. We're going to treat non-US companies the same way we treat US companies if we've authorized them um, already under the scope of either the sanctions lifting or under the scope of uh, U.S. sanctions, then we don't do a separate letter. Now, I will tell you that there are things that are called comfort letters that we issued over the course of the deal um, where there were things that um, were the governments involved in the deal wanted to occur, and it was unclear whether what would occur was uh, authorized by US sanctions. And so in those cases, what we said is, you can do this pursuant to the JCPOA. Um, that was something that is, if you think of those, think of those letters as being in, in the handfuls where we basically are explaining the architecture of the deal and why something that we, the, the P5 plus one, E3 plus three, and the European Union de uh, decided was necessary as part of the deal. So the answer is no, we don't do comfort letters or letters as a matter of course. Now, you ask for advisory opinions. We do uh, request for interpretive guidance if there is some question that is really, that it, you believe is not answered by our sanctions rules, then that is uh, a typical, you can either, often we'll see an application for license or request for interpretive guidance where a company comes in and says, we think this may be authorized, but we want to um, ask for a license if it's not. And so we do get those types of applications today. 
Um, over here, the gentleman, uh, glasses, holding your hand up. Yep. Yes. You, sir. Uh, your name and affiliation, please. Beru Sadavi, I have a question regarding um, restrictions that are imposed at the state level or by the courts. Do you have authority over those as well, or it's kind of a secondary foreign policy type action? Well, maybe we'll give you a break for just a second, George. Do you want to offer anything on this first? Sure. Uh, just for the benefit of the audience, uh, many, many states uh, prohibit their, their state pension funds from investing in non-Iranian companies that engage in certain kinds of Iranian business. And the JCPOA doesn't require the federal government of the United States to uh, arrange for the termination of, of those state-level prohibitions. I think there's an effort to communicate with the states that those prohibitions are anachronistic in a post-JCPOA world, but it's, it's not a violation, to my knowledge, of the JCPOA if the states decide to continue uh, not to permit their pension funds to invest in certain securities issued by companies that do certain kinds of business with Iran. In terms of the courts, I think the reference is to litigation uh, by plaintiff's lawyers on behalf of the uh, families of persons who have uh, died in circumstances uh, that are according to the litigation attributable to the government of Iran, where the government of Iran didn't show up in court to defend itself, and the courts therefore awarded huge judgments. And uh, to enforce these judgments, the, the claimants are, are pursuing Iranian government assets held in the United States, and the JCPOA doesn't have any impact on that situation. Uh, I understand that Iran is extremely unhappy with the recent legislative developments that enhance the ability of plaintiff's lawyers to claim against Iranian assets and is planning to pursue uh, an action against the United States at the International Court in The Hague. Uh, but again, that's uh, from a U.S. perspective, that's, that's not a JCPOA uh, violation by the United States. Okay. In the interest of time, what I'll do now is take about uh, three or four questions and then uh, ask for the panel to uh, give their responses. So um, uh, in the yellow right here. Yep. Thank you. My name is Amal Mudalili. I'm with the Wilson Center. My question is about uh, what Mr. Smith yeah, talked about, uh, the IRGC, and it seems that you are um, uh, uh, differentiating between the uh, Iranian government and its military wing. Uh, the IRGC. Uh, could you please tell us how are you going to enforce that? How, who's, uh, the burden is on the companies to decide what is an IRGC company? Because the IRGC has proliferation prefer in all aspects of the Iranian economy. Who's going to decide this is a, con a, a company that's supported by the IRGC or not? Yeah, the American government or the companies have to do their own work? Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, all the way in the back, and the, I think the last row in black. In black. Yes. Can you grab that? 
Hi, thanks. I'm Suzanne DiMaggio from New America. Uh, my question is from Mr. Smith, and it relates to the specially designated nationals list, the SDN list. Um, I think it's fair to say that the unsavories on that list, um, who they are and what they do and where their tentacles go, is quite murky. Uh, I think there's a similar issue that we've encountered in Myanmar, too. They have an SDN list. There, we call them cronies, and uh, they have their fingers in every pie. So I would imagine uh, that if I was an investor looking to go into Iran, um, that would really turn me off, uh, that murkiness. So as um, OFAC, what, do you recognize the murkiness that that entails? And do you work with potential investors to help them um, get a lay of the land? And if you went into Iran and, and, and worked with the company, later on it could be revealed that one of these individuals was in some way directly or indirectly involved in that company. Is there some flexibility in how you um, deal with that? Thank you. Okay, we'll take two more very quickly. Barbara, and then uh, in the front. Thanks, Barbara Slavin from the Atlantic Council. Excellent discussion. Uh, two questions. What are you doing to facilitate academic exchanges between the US and Iran? Are you doing anything to reduce the regulatory burden there of having to get OFAC licenses for professors and students to talk to each other? And uh, can Boeing use a US bank if it gets uh, approval from you guys? Thank you. To sell planes. Thank you. Here we are. Stephen Heinz, Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Thank you all very much. Terrific and illuminating conversation. Uh, my question is about the Financial Activity Task Force, the FATF. As you've noted, John, uh, North Korea and Iran are the only two countries listed on the so-called blacklist. There is an upcoming meeting of the task force, I think, in the next few weeks. Uh, is the U.S. prepared to support removing Iran from the blacklist at this point? And if not, say a little bit more about what Iran would have to do in order to get off the list. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for your excellent questions. John, I'm gonna give you the floor to, uh, to do cleanup here, and I'm afraid our time is tight, so be efficient. I'm gonna go fast, um, <laughs> faster than I have so far, and I apologize if I haven't done it fast enough before. Um, when you talk about the IRGC and who enforces and how to, uh, where, where the burden is on that, who decides whether it's the IRGC, and the answer is, that in the first instance, it's the company. The company does the due diligence to understand who it is dealing with. And I'm going to take it out of the sanctions landscape. And I would say for anybody who wants to deal in, with any other company around the world, you're going to do your due diligence to make sure that you know your customer, you know your client, you know who that company is. And I think in much the same way, I would expect you to do it here. We do not aim to play gotcha with this. And as I said in my opening remarks, um, our standard is a knowledge standard in the secondary sanctions context, meaning that you should have known, that you knew or should have known that you, if, but if you collect the documents, if you do your due diligence and you had no way of knowing, we do not expect you to know the unknowable. That is going to be the answer you're going to hear from OFAC and people have been hearing it since implementation day. I think on, that gets a little bit to the second question on the SDN list, um, unsavories and the murkiness there. I think this, how we try to deal with that at OFAC is when we 
know that there's clearly somebody that um, is linked to a crony or a link to another company, you'll see us update our list, as we recently did in Burma, to add additional companies linked to cronies. That's one of the ways that we try to do it. But the answer is the same, that we expect companies to do their due diligence, to do their homework, and know who they're dealing with. I will, you don't have to take my word for it that OFAC is not looking to penalize innocent mistakes because every one of our penalties, every one of our settlements is on our website. We are as transparent as can be. We don't do side cover deals where something is not transparent. So if you want to see our enforcement cases, go on our website and look at the type of activities that we're talking about. And those banks and other companies that received sizable penalties from OFAC, you'll see the knowledge and the awareness and the rec recklessness that occurred in virtually all of those cases. And so I think that can give you some assurance um, there. So I do think that we are flexible. In terms of what we're doing to facilitate academic exchanges between the US and Iran, I think um, it continues to be a discussion between OFAC and the State Department to make sure that we do all we can uh, between the United States and the Iranian people to support uh, the proper exchanges, whether they be academic or elsewhere. And we continue to have ongoing discussions. I don't want to talk about any particular area, but that continues, that has been a focus of our policy. It is the reason that we have long allowed food, medicine, metal, medical products, and even um, internet personal communication devices to go to the people of Iran because of those types of policies, and we continue those discussions. Um, you ask about a particular company and whether they'd be allowed to use a US bank. Um, I won't talk about a particular company, but what I can say is generally when we authorize uh, a US company to engage in a transaction, um, the financing or, or the banking for that can be a, an authorized part of the transaction. And you can look at how, I think the best model for this may be what's occurred in the exports of food and medicine and how the banking transactions work there. And I would continue to point to that as a model of what we've continued to allow through our programs. And on the FATF question, um, I don't want to talk about what we're prepared to do in the future. And I can be very honest about this and say, happily, the FATF work is not in my portfolio. It's another part of our overall TFI uh, portfolio. But what I can say is that the US our European partners and the other members of the FATF have been engaging in good faith uh, with uh, Iran in this process. And I expect that that will continue um, in the future. And I think it will take some work on the government of Iran's part to meet the, the necessary next steps uh, that can happen. Thank you, John. And can I ask all of you to join me in thanking the panel for their remarks with a round of applause.